Hello, and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. I'm your host, Taylor. Downtime is taking a break for the holidays, so this week we thought we'd share with you this episode from Rhodey Radio, where they speak to Michael Gerard of the New England Explorers to talk about his experience exploring caves at home and abroad. We hope you enjoy it. <laughs> so don't feel, uh, don't feel alone about that, especially when I'm going out with my ROV. Boy, you're out in the middle of a flooded cave or mine, and suddenly someone says, did you run the push recording? You're like, ah, we missed all that recording. <laughs> You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. Outdoor explorer Michael Gerard has traveled all over New England and many other places across the world. In his journeys, he has rediscovered some of the most interesting forgotten history and lost locations. He works hard to uncover extraordinary tales of mysterious caves, enigmatic petroglyphs, and sinister brutes that most people have never heard of. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so how does somebody get started with exploring? What was your journey like? Well, my journey was uh, kind of stumbling around before I finally started becoming an explorer. I think it was always... Uh, in my blood or like something I always enjoyed. I, growing up, I explored, I wander around, but I lost touch with that when I came to, when you gotta get a job, you gotta go to college and so on. And it was funny that I completely forgot about it until I actually worked a job where I traveled around to do work, different companies across the US. And people used to tell me when I'd say, hey, I'm going off to see this on my free day. They say to me, no, 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 you don't want to go there. You want to go here. And they share with me the interesting places that only locals knew about, people who've been there for a long time. And for many years, I enjoyed that with a variety of people I worked with for a short period of time across the US. And when I stopped doing that, I missed it. So that's when I really started to get back into exploring on my own. I thought to myself, if those kind of places are all over America and all these cities I've worked in, there must be stuff here in New England. So I started digging and researching and trying to find places around here that I could explore. And actually, it started with going to the library and digging up old publications and you know, starting to see what I could find. And then it kind of took off from there. So what's that process like? How do you find where you want to go next? How do you do that research? Um, well, usually the way it begins is, uh, nowadays it's often I have a long list anyway. I've been doing this for quite a while. But in the beginning, the way it would work would be I'd be start, starting to dig through a story maybe that most people knew about. Uh, maybe an interesting place that only people who like to do outdoor things know about. But I wouldn't just leave it at that with just the you know, tip of the iceberg, just the general information. I keep digging deeper and deeper, getting more and more information. And what happened with that was incredible because while on these journeys of exploration and information and literature, I would stumble on another story, a mention of something, and I'd put that on a list. And then I keep digging and I find out another person or a place and I put that on a list and I, I would, then I would dig for those. Now, this is where I, I think, you know, 
going to libraries in the beginning helped out a lot because I think libraries are a good place. If you're not good at researching, librarians are like masters at it. They are the original Google. So from then, I learned more and more how to use these great resources that were available and dig more and more and deeper and deeper to find more stories. And the, the one wonderful thing about the journey is that all along the way, you're going to be collecting more and more leads of things to follow up on. After that, then it's getting out there and exploring and interviewing people. When you go to towns, it's good to talk to the local people, see what they know about. And sometimes they give you another lead. Also, going to historical societies are a wonderful place to go to. You can uh, look at what kind of information they have about the locals that may have been involved in what you're researching, and you'll find more information that you want to follow up on later. So it's this complicated web of information that's out there that you just keep following those leads to see where it brings you. Sometimes it's a wonderful story and a wonderful location to go find, and sometimes you hit a dead end. But you know what? The journey just getting this information itself sometimes is more enjoyable than finding the destination eventually. Sounds almost endless. It is. So it sounds like you've done exploration a lot on your own. Are there also groups that people can get connected with if they want to explore with other people? Well, I, I don't know of any real exploration groups uh, that are available out there. There may be some. And I don't necessarily do things totally on my own. I, in the beginning, I did. I was pretty much on my own, and I would get friends to come along with me to do these journeys of exploration. But really, it was a more of an independent venture for quite a while. But over time, I found there were other people like me doing exactly the same thing, but different focuses, different points of interest for them. And we would join up to team up on things. As a matter of fact, right now, I'm working on a project with... Uh, Mike Sandone, he lives in Connecticut. Uh, on his free time, he explores the oldest mines in the Northeast and he's looking for the oldest mines in North America. And him and I work together to go explore them. And we just have to meet on a project we cross paths on. So I think with that, you start to build your own group of explorers that you can team up with. But in the end, I think very independent because everyone has their own interests, their own focus. So that project that you do uh, with Mike Sandone, you're also documenting that, right, for a series? He's working on a series of documentaries he does uh, called Minds and Mysteries. He's been doing that for quite a while. And uh, every time we go out, he ends up publishing a short documentary on the piece. Matter of fact, we just did one just about a week ago. Yeah, well, I think it was exactly a week ago from today. And we went and ran an ROV in a sump in a cave in New York. And it was a wonderful journey. And within one week, he had a 10-minute teaser out for the end result. We got to go back there in um, spring to do further research. But already, we've stirred up a lot of interest in the uh, community of explorers and cavers around the world. In Cumbria, England is Eden Village, a quiet part of the UK with its traditional towns and pubs, beautiful hamlets, and sandstone villages, some dating back to Viking times. A few miles north of the historic town of Penrith is a small village called Little Sulkid. On the west side of the village is the Eden River. It was known to the Romans as the Etauna. This name derives from the Celtic word 
Ituna, meaning water or rushing. It winds its way north toward Carlisle. The largest house in the village is the manor in Little Sulkid, confirmed by King Edward I. It's said to be the original home of the Sulkid family of landowners and Sulkid Hall, built in the 16th century. The village has a vicarage with no church and Little Sulkid Watermill that was built in 1745 and is still operating. Little Sulkid is also known for Long Meg and her daughters, a Bronze Age stone circle consisting of 51 stones, of which 27 remain upright. The tallest stone is 3.7 meters high and stands outside the circle. It is made of local red sandstone carved with a spiral, a cup and ring mark, and concentric circles. Poet William Wordsworth deemed them to be the country's most notable relics after Stonehenge. What tips or advice do you have for people who want to start exploring? They've never done it before. They want to get their feet wet and get out there. Well, the first thing, of course, is just start. It doesn't matter what you're doing, no matter what you think. You, you Even if you think what you're looking for isn't that real exciting, just start doing something. And that's how I had to begin and get out there and explore. And over time, you're going to find what your focus is and you're going to sharpen your skills. And I think that's the beginning is sharpening those skills. And if you enjoy exploring, it won't feel like you're doing any work to sharpen those skills. It feels second nature. And that's the wonderful thing about doing something you're passionate for. I mean, those research skills that I, I've honed doing exploring now come in handy with a lot of things I do. Now, once you get better and better at doing the research, then you can start to utilize the many assets that are available uh, from your library and your uh, historical societies. But the key thing I would say when you're doing the research is don't give up. Don't, don't just call it quits once you find, oh, here it is. I'm going to go find it. And then that's all. Because I don't think you get the whole experience from that. Now, when you do go out exploring, I suggest that you be very careful depending on where you're going. If you're going to go in caves and mines, that is definitely something you shouldn't do alone. When I go to caves or mines on my own, I will only go to the entrance. I will not venture inside. So I, I highly advise do not do that without experience also doing underground exploration. So there are things that are dangerous, so be careful. Um, but really, yeah, it's just getting started. I think when you find what your passion is, your passion will lead you. And that's how it worked with me is that I didn't know what I wanted to end up exploring, but where I am today is not where I began back in my early 20s. So you can't really plan exactly what it is that you're going to be focusing on until you start doing. Was there a specific uh, location that sort of changed your mindset and led you to where you are today? Yeah, I would say it was well, the moment I was able to explore this wonderful marble cave. It's the most beautiful marble cave in the Northeast. When I went in to see, I actually read the story. It was from a book about a young boy who uh, had read a story actually in a magazine about caves. And after he finished reading the story, he thought about the things he learned from the magazine. He thought to himself, well, you know, I know an area on a mountain near me where it kind of fits that description. And he went out and within a day, he found a cave. Ends up being one of the most beautiful and longest marble caves I know of. And he went in there with just a candle. Very dangerous, but at the time, this was, I think, in the 1800s. 
And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And the way he described it was so beautiful, but it sounded a lot more dangerous than it really is. So when I heard that story, I needed to see that cave. So I eventually hunted it down for myself. And when I got in there, it was as beautiful, if not more beautiful than he described. As a, this, this is, the quality of marble in that cave is awe-inspiring with swirling grays and bluish grays and reddish grays and of all styles all the way through. It's about 900 feet long. And every little bit along that journey, though, I was frightened. I was afraid that, oh, my God, I'm going to get myself stuck in it. I was with, actually, I had someone with me, though. And, but every time I stepped outside my comfort zone, soon I found that, well, no, there's nothing to worry about. I can do this. And that kept on happening for the whole 900 feet. And then when I left there, it changed me. And it made me realize two things. Number one, I love the underground. I love exploring it. I love the history connected to it, whether it's a mine or a cave. But also it taught me an important thing is that I don't see my, that, that anxiety you get, that discomfort when you are stepping outside your comfort zone as a stop sign anymore. I see it as a yield or a warning sign to say, be careful. But when you're at that moment, when you're stepping outside your comfort zone, that's when you're going to start to learn new things and learn your abilities and what you're capable of. And you should trust yourself that you'll know when to stop. Because if you keep pushing through it, in the end, what you find on the other side of that comfort zone is the most rewarding experience that you'll ever have. And when you go back from it, now you've changed yourself. Now your comfort zone has grown exponentially. And the world is so much more interesting, a lot larger for you. So I would, I would say that that's another lesson to learn is that don't let discomfort stop you. But at the same time, be very careful. Especially if you are alone. Yeah, so yeah, why you shouldn't be alone. Hidden in the forest along the eastern edge of Eden River, just a few miles north of the village, you can find five curious chambers known as Lacey's Cave. They are named after Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Lacey of Salkett Hall, who commissioned their carving in the 18th century. Colonel Lacey is best known for the caves, and it is also said that he ordered Long Meg and her daughters to be blown up so the fields could be plowed. But a terrifying storm broke out as work started and the workmen fled. Lacey's caves consist of five chambers carved out of the sandstone cliffs directly above the River Eden, when such romantic follies were popular on country estates. The area was originally planted with ornamental gardens containing colorful rhododendrons and laburnums some of which still survive. The chambers were used by Lacey for entertaining guests. No one is sure what inspired the caves, but some suspect Lacey was emulating the caves at Wetherill, further up the River Eden. What's your favorite place that you've explored in Rhode Island? And then what's your favorite place that you've explored worldwide worldwide okay let me see in rhode island let me see hmm in rhode island wow there's so many places you'd be surprised there's lots of caves in rhode island too i did an article about i think there's about 40 different caves some not very impressive but i have to say it's a counterfeiter's cave this was a lost counterfeiter's cave that's uh probably about a hundred or more years ago was big in the news because actually it was yeah probably early 
1800s, late 1700s, big news because these counterfeiters had been operating out in the middle of the forest in Rhode Island. And they had discovered on this piece of property this natural cave. It was just a strange triangular opening on the surface of the forest. You would not expect the cave to be there. And it was very small, but what they did was they set up a hut, a wooden structure they built to do their counterfeiting nearby. And they would do their counterfeiting there by night. And then when they had to go to their day jobs, they take all their materials out of there and hide it in the cave. And since it was on the forest floor, they just drag a slab of rock over it, put forest debris on top of it. And I honestly, if you didn't know where it was, you would never find it. And they did this for many years. And eventually though, uh, because they let a young boy, I believe his name was Zadok, in, get involved with it because he had discovered them. So he let him become involved. He, and he was like a teenager. And he foolishly ended up spending the counterfeit coins where he shouldn't have and then was arrested and told what was going on. They were arrest, arrested, went to court. They actually got off on it. No charges. Some talk about political, you know, involvement in this counterfeiting too with that, but that's a whole other story. But, and, uh, and everyone went free, but the cave became a big thing. People were going out there to see it. It was, but it was way, of, remember back then in the 17, late 1700s, going to what we consider deep in the woods now was incredibly deeper, much, much more of a journey. So quickly interested, it died off, and then its location was lost. So, I, you know, I went out to find it. I was surprised that I actually researched it for a year. And then when I finally went out to find it, I never thought I would find it on the first try, but I got really lucky. And I saw this area where I saw some bedrock. And I said, that's where you find caves. This is that with experience, you learn to spot things. You get better at, you know, understanding the, uh, reading the forest. And when I searched the area, I couldn't find it. I was just about to leave. And I saw out of the corner of my eye, this little black space under the leaves. And I was going to walk away, but then the voice inside my head said, never overlook anything. Go look closer at it. And that's another thing you have to learn. No matter how minute of a, you know, inkling you get to look at something, go check it out closer. There may be a reason why. And I'm glad I did because when I swept the leaves away, I saw a big slab of rock there and I tugged on it and it didn't move. This was wintertime. So tugged on it again, it didn't move. And then the last time I pulled it with all my strength and then the ground released it from its frozen grip and there revealed a triangular opening on the ground. And I realized this is it. And then you could see the rocks put on the lip of that opening to make a flat surface for that slab to lie on. And it was an amazing experience to think that something that these men were using over a hundred years ago that had long forgotten, now here I was, in that place. And for that moment, I connected with them and also connected with those people that had visited it back in the late 1700s. So get an excitement. That happens often when I find these places. I feel a connection to those people. So I, I just have to say, the cave isn't big. The cave actually is not very, it's like eh, 17 feet long, three or four feet high, very just big enough for three men crouched down to be in it. Good enough to hold their equipment and their goods to make uh, counterfeit coins. But there was something about the mystery of it and uh, you know, how it was so well hidden for hundreds of years out into the forest, in the forest and now once again revealed. And I actually talked to the local um, town and told them where it was. And last time I spoke to them, we we're trying to work out with the landowner for what they call a conservation easement on it. So it'll be always protected. 
um, and they can regulate who can come and go on the property, but that way it keeps as a historical landmark for Rhode Island. So are caves man-made or are they, or do people like use them to their advantage? Like this, this cave only being large enough for those few men who are counterfeiting? No, yeah, most caves aren't man-made. Uh, caves are natural, there's different kinds. There's talus caves and fracture caves and solution caves and lava caves or lava tubes. Also what you find in New England are solution caves, which basically water with a little bit of uh, carbonic acid from rain will basically melt away over hundreds of years the stone. So that's very soluble. And then you have uh, talus caves. That's where cliffs that crumble down and break down and make a big rock pile. Within that rock pile, there's spaces you can crawl. Polar caves in New Hampshire is exactly like that. It's a wonderful talus caves. And then fracture caves is where the uh, tectonic activity would cause splitting of the rock or also what they call ice wedging where water gets between rocks and forces it open and makes these big spaces between it. Those also you find in New England, but there are man-made caves. There are stone huts that people made. Uh, Matter of Rhode Island, there's, there was one that used to be where uh, East Providence, actually it was Massachusetts at the time uh, that a hermit made for himself. Uh, he made in such an igloo out of stone and he lived in it while working on a local farm. You can find on old maps, I think called Hermit Hill. And uh, that, but this cave is long gone. The property has been redeveloped. So unfortunately we lost that bit of history, but there's a great story about it. You can dig up from the library. So there's a book that was published all about his life. He was a freed slave. Interesting. Yep. The hike to Lacey's Cave begins at the Village Greens in Little Sulkit. Along the way, you'll find yourself passing by the old vicarage on your right. Not far ahead, you turn onto a farm road that follows the Eden River north. After a mile, you divert onto a trail into the forest. This trail will bring you much closer to the banks of the river. Soon you'll notice a long since abandoned gypsum mine that operated between 1880 and 1976. If you look closely at the trail you've been following, you'll realize it is the remains of the railroad beds that were once used by the mine. You'll follow the trail into the forest for a little more than a half mile. Along the way, you can enjoy the beautiful scenery along the river. When you come onto the caves, you'll see the trail continues up over the red sandstone hill. To your left though, you'll find a narrow path to the face of the cliff that sits over the river. Here you'll find the entrance to the caves. Okay, so back to uh, your favorite places to explore. What was your favorite oh. place to explore worldwide? Worldwide, let me see. Wow, that's a, that's a tough well, I, I have to say, probably my favorite place was the, the exploring the lava tubes in Iceland. Oh. Uh, it's a wonderful change because the caves I'm used to experiencing here in America, like lava tubes is not the, at all like that. And they're completely different because in a sense, you could say it's a cave that's created by fire. Mm. And what happens is as lava is moving, it's flowing, little by little, the outer crust of it will harden. And more and more harder, but the lava in it will keep moving. So it creates this tube around it. And eventually the lava inside will flow out and leave an empty tube. And the lava fields in Iceland, I'm sure everyone heard about the volcano that went off recently. The lava tube I went to 
wasn't that far away from where the volcano was. But I mean, far enough away, I wouldn't have to have to worry about lava coming up in that way. I would, I would have been safe. But um, but it's not that far. That's a giant lava field on the southern coast of um, of Iceland, uh, south of Reykjavik. And it was just wonderful. It just looked completely different than I've ever seen. Beautiful reds and purplish colors and then blacks and weird, like looked like melted rock that went on for over a thousand feet and huge. I think it was about 30 feet wide and maybe 30 or 40 feet high. Um, but the thing you got to keep in mind when you go in lava tubes, uh, you have to be mindful and always make sure you wear your caving helmet because lava tubes are a little more unstable than caves like solution caves. They are very porous rock. Water can get in them freezing and creating it to break up so you can get collapses. So don't go in something like that if you're not familiar with it or you don't know it's a safe place. But that was an incredible experience and where I had to hike out to go was like a desert of lava. So wonderful experience. And uh, I definitely want to go back. I have plans to go back to Iceland to do some more exploring. It's awesome. And uh, what is on your exploration bucket list? What's a place that you've maybe heard of that you would really like to see or, you know, tales that you've heard of, anything like that? Well, one that I've been talking about with my uh, friend Sandone is up in uh, Labrador. Uh, there is a mountain, a mountain range in Labrador, where the Inuits talked about a monster of sorts that lived in the caves of those mountains. And there is limestone up there, so definitely there could be solution caves in this area. So one of the things we talked about doing, not necessarily within the next year, but not too distant future, is venturing out into Labrador. I mean, it's a very dangerous area, something you have to plan way ahead of time. This is going to be probably hundreds of miles of trekking down river, probably by um, boat, and see if we can find the caves, find those caves that the Inuits believe the, uh, the monster or the evil spirit lived within. And now there's no way we can definitely, definitively say, yes, this is the cave, uh, unless we dig up more history. And that's what we're probably going to do for the next two or three years is dig the history up, see if we can nail it down. But that's definitely on my to-do list that, that's really high up there. It's just going to take time to work towards that. Now, a little closer to us um, on my to-do list is more of venturing into the flooded sections of local caves. Um, these are mysterious, not for stories related to them. They're mysterious because these are places that people can't go to. They're very dangerous to go in. That's why uh, cave divers may not have gone in some of the locations we're looking at, but we have an underwater ROV now, so we can safely send it in with no worries about loss of life. Mostly it can happen as we lose our ROV, but just to see what's on the other side and answer that question and also understand the geology of what's going on underground, which is you know, a value for uh, geologists and other scientists out there. The outer chambers appear to have been greatly weathered by wind and rain. The exposure to the elements has revealed fins of a harder sandstone hidden within the bedrock. The largest of the five caves is approximately 12 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 12 feet high. The deepest cave is reached through an arched tunnel, 18 feet long, 3 feet wide, and 7 feet high. In the largest of the outer chambers, 
you can find decades of graffiti covering the walls as wind and sand smoothed away the marks of previous generations. The next generations chiseled theirs over their faint remains. The deeper chambers have been protected from exposure. Here you can find the beautifully cut arches and alcoves as they might have appeared to Lacey and his friends. Walls and passages have been cut by hand with precision. If you look closely at the walls, you can still see the marks of the chisels used to make this wonderful folly. Lacey's caves are just one of the many beautiful treasures we found hidden in Cumbria. Anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners about exploring, about your travels, anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to share? Um, no matter what your interest is in exploring, uh, once you start your journey, you're going to uncover a lot of things that maybe you never thought you were interested in that are just as much fun. Like one of the things that I often find is some of the most interesting or strangest history, especially here in New England, in other areas of the world. And sometimes they're not attached to a location, but they are incredible stories to unfold. And you have to remember, like here in New England, for example, we had people from all over the world coming to one place, bringing their cultural perspective, their worries and superstitions, beliefs. And when it came to, in a sense, what would be an alien world to them, fully new with things they're not familiar with, their interpretation of that is incredible. I found some of the most strange stories about experiences, real experiences they had, but we're hearing it through the perspective of their cultural understanding of the world. So you hear about, you know, ghouls and creatures of all sorts and shadow people and so on. And it is such a wonderful cultural and historical experience to see through the eyes of those people at the time. Like, for example, there was um, pilgrims who believed there were lions in the new world. They used to run up the tree frightened when they would hear the noises because they thought really there were lions. That's what they were familiar with that matched the sound they had heard. There was an incident where this seaside town in Massachusetts believed that these shadow creatures were attacking them. And it did it for, I believe it was a week or more. And we can read the whole story right in the Wonders of the Invisible World by Cotton Mather, and where he got letters from the priests from that, um, that particular town. And he published the letters exactly as they were. So you want to hear about the strangest experiences going on, you can read it right from a person who was there. So it's wonderful things to discover with just doing that research. So like I said, sometimes that journey, trying to find what your destination is, ends up being far more interesting than getting out on the trail and turning up a cave or mine or whatever it may be you're looking for. So just start doing it and take advantage of those resources you have. There are so many out there um, that, and many at the library. One of the things I really love is interlibrary loaning. I've gotten books that are available from nowhere around here that are sent over from Washington State. Within a week, I got it in my hands and I'm reading through it. And there's a publication that maybe a handful of places in America or sometimes in the world, depends on the library. Some libraries will interloan from Canada too. And now you have this resource to dig through. So get out there and start doing it because 
you'll be amazed at what you're going to discover just reading about it. So you don't have to be an outdoor explorer like me. You can be an armchair explorer. That's just as valuable and just as much fun. So speaking of resources, you also have a, you have two websites um, where people can sort of learn about where you're exploring and where you've mapped some places in Rhode Island that they might try checking out. Is that true? Yes, I have um, New England, uh, Strange New England. That's the one I started putting some of my stranger history. And then also I talk about some caves and things I do uh, on Strange New England. That's strange-new England, sorry, strange-new-england.com. It's long. And uh, I also have and New England Explorers, which is neexplorers.org. So it's N-E-E-X-P-L-O-R-E-S dot O-R-G. So those two. And I just actually put up a new website for my stuff, for my more serious exploration. That's michael-gerard.com. If you go there, you can see some of the expeditions I've done. Matter of fact, you can see the one I did just a week ago. We, I just put up a short write-up and a link to the short video we did there. So any of those, but if anyone has questions or maybe is interested in something and they want some help, just they can reach out to me. Maybe I can give them a tip or show them a lead to somewhere I've been before. I'm more than happy to start off uh, helping some other people who want to do exploring out there. But just as long as they understand some places I go to, I can't give access to or give information because of agreements with landowners or the danger of going there. So I just need you to respect that. But if I have many places that I'm sure many people will be interested in going to. I'm uh, happy to give them out. Great. So we'll put those links in the show notes. Uh, people can explore your websites and then uh, your contact information is on those websites. Yes. Perfect. Yep. You can, they should have links there. They can just click on to reach out to me, send me an email. Um, so any of them, you can do it from the call comes to one bucket after. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, inspiring us to get outside and explore or get online or in our libraries to explore it with our minds and our bodies. Oh, thank you for inviting me and have a great day. Brody Radio is proud to be a resident partner of the Rhode Island Center for the Book and is brought to you by library staff and community members all around the Ocean State. Check the show notes for links to information from today's episode. You can find more from Roadie Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Roadie Radio and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to help us reach more Rhode Islanders. <laughs>